I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Flinor. And I'm your host, Sarah Century. My cat just dropped off a bunch <laughs> of cat hair. So, <laughs> just... <laughs> Dropped it off like a package. Gross. (laughs) Yeah, not great, but a fun way to start an episode. I'm Sarah Century, one of your hosts, and I am here. We are both here. In fact, we are all three here (laughs) with a special guest, Sophie Campbell. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm dancing. (laughs) Yay. So Sophie, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? If you're like out in the world and someone's like, hey, what's your whole deal? And you're like, this is my whole deal. What would you say? God, what is my deal? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you know, I do comics, obviously. I do stuff where people talk about their feelings and cry and stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I feel like that's my deal. That sums it up. I like it. Comics where people talk about their feelings and cry is... (laughs) My favorite genre of comedy. Yeah, and like so, sometimes there's other stuff, you know, sometimes there's like monsters or mm-hmm. murder or like ninjas or something, but, mm-hmm. you know. Jumping from roof to roof. Right, you know? then they'll go back and talk about their feelings afterward. <laughs> right, because they have feelings too. Yeah. Amazing. So I think I first came to your work actually through the Ninja Turtles, Whoa. which is late in the game. Apologies, <laughs> but uh, I fucking love the Ninja Turtles, and I fucking love your Ninja Turtles. Thank you. So I'm going to start there, even though it's like, what's going on right now? 
because I don't know, I just decided that was where I was going to start. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to hear about how you got involved with writing the Ninja Turtles and, you know, what do you enjoy about working with a licensed property and like how much freedom have you had to like determine where they're going? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I think the first professional Turtles thing I did was in 2007 or six, because that, that was back when Mirage was still publishing the Turtles. Uh-huh. And I emailed uh, Steve Murphy, you know, prolific uh, Ninja Turtles uh, writer. And I emailed him just out of the blue. I can't remember how I got his email. And I was just like, hey, you don't know me, but I love Ninja Turtles. And here's some of my Ninja Turtles fan art. And that was it. Like, you know, I had nothing to lose. And then he got me a couple, they call them frontist pieces for Tales of the Ninja Turtles series, which is like the kind of companion series. Um, so that was that was my first thing. And, I, you know, it was, very, it was very exciting. And then a little bit after that, you know, Peter Laird sold the Turtles to Viacom. and. Then Dark Horse was trying to get the license in, in like 2010. And I had a friend who was an editor there and he contacted me and was just like, hey, we're going to get the Turtles license. You know, like, do you want to do you want to draw it? And I was just like, hell yeah, I do. And, you know, this is something I wanted to do since I was a kid. It's like coming full circle here. And that fell through. And then IDW got the license and I made a stink about it on Twitter <laughs> because I was like, that was my book. That was my Turtles book. And then I'm not sure if it was my being a baby, like online about it, or if it was just the, my Mirage stuff and my fan art that put me on the editor's radar. But, you know, shortly after that, I did the Leonardo solo issue. And then, you know, it kind of just went from there. And then, you know, I got like bigger and bigger stuff, you know, like bigger assignments and stuff on the Turtles. And it was really rough at first, actually, for me, because it's, you know, like every fan of something has their own vision of how something should be or how something should look. And so when I started doing professional turtle stuff that had to like go through like an approval process and stuff, I would like really bristle at notes that I would get from the Nickelodeon people. And, you know, I was a real diva back then, I guess. And it was really hard being a super fan, working on this thing that you love. And then somebody being this like, can you not draw the turtles quite like this? Can you do it like a little bit differently? And, you know, it's difficult. Like, I'd just be like, what are you talking about? Like, ah, and then I would like lose sleep over it. And um, (laughs) they offered me like bigger jobs on the series like early on. And I turned them down. Because I just like I couldn't handle it, like 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 emotionally, I guess. Um, but they've gotten you know, things have gotten much looser since then. Um, I think like early on, it was kind of like nobody really quite has a handle on what this comic is going to be yet, like what the tone is, what it looks like. People are still figuring it out, and so there was just like more restrictions, I guess. And then as time has gone on, and the series has kind of found its identity and its footing, it's much more lenient. And, you know, I've been more open to taking other Turtles jobs and doing writing for it and stuff. The editor, Bobby, offered the first time he asked me to take over writing the series after Tom Waltz left. I said no, because I thought it would, it's just like too much stress, too much pressure. You know, like I care too much about it or something. 
And then, like, you know, I kind of slept on it. And I was just like, yeah, you know, I should probably do that. Um, and that was it. And I'm still doing it. Did it change how you felt about the process to move into that writing role? I don't know. Not really. I feel like I have more fun writing it than I do drawing it because there's something exciting about deciding what a character says, you know, and their with their dialogue or whatever, and like deciding where things are going to go. And, and, you know, I get to introduce new characters if I feel like it. I get to, you know, introduce old characters and like revamp them, you know. And I guess I guess the main positive thing is that it's really easy for me to write for myself to draw. You know, like my scripts are like really like there's no detail, you know, like I just purely write the scripts pretty much to like show to my editor so they have something to look at and so they know what's going to happen. But it's really, you know, I'll do like, you know, panel one, Raphael. And like, that's the panel description, (laughs) you know, like I don't need to, you know, I know what it's going to look like, like when I write it. So that's really nice. And like, I don't have the problem of, you know, getting a script from a writer and there's something in it that I hate and I have to figure out, you know, should I say anything or should I, you know, like, what do I do here? So, you know, that's really nice that I don't have to worry about that. Interesting. Yeah, we've had a a handful of different folks on lately talking about, you know, they play more than one role. So we had someone who letters and writes. Uh, Erica Schultz was talking about that experience. And that was like, very interesting to hear about. She's like, you know, I just like, sometimes I'll change what they say because I'm yeah. like, oh, I want it to be different. I'm just curious, like, do you make changes like that? I mean, I guess because your scripts are pretty bare bones, maybe not. But I was just curious, like, do you picture it differently? Are you picturing it as you write it or are you more picturing it as you translate it? I guess a little bit of both. Um I'll have like a general idea of what it's going to look like when I'm writing it. And then when I get to the drawing page, you know, like I might have like a different idea or like a better idea and be like, oh, I'm going to do this instead. And with the lettering thing, because like I letter my own comics, like Wet Moon or whatever. And I do the same thing as Erica was talking about, where like I'll change dialogue at the last minute, you know, stuff like that, you know, because like I'm writing, you know, I'm writing the dialogue on the page and like it's, it's kind of fluid and it doesn't need to stick to the script. Like, I don't have to hand it off to somebody who, like, needs a concrete, you know, text to, to put in there. Sometimes with Turtles, you know, like, I'll look at proofs, like like PDF proofs, and then kind of go through and be like, okay, let's change this word balloon. I want to change this dialogue. Let's cut this. So it's similar. It's not quite as fluid, but sometimes I'll, like, rewrite dialogue at the last second and stuff like that. It's just, you know, there's just a bit more of a process because I have to tell my editor who then has to tell the letterer, that kind of thing. Although I did do, I did the Prey backup in uh, TMNT Universe that I wrote and lettered. It's like that short Koya story. I don't know if you guys read that, but I got to hand letter that myself. So that was one thing where like, I don't even know if I had all the dialogue in the script. I, I was just kind of like, my stuff, when I'm doing everything on it, it tends to be like really malleable until the last second where it has to like solidify into its final form or whatever. So yeah, so I've done like a little bit of that on turtle stuff. Interesting. I'm always like curious about the actual like creative process as much as sort of the broad strokes too. So, okay. Who was your favorite turtle when you first got into them? Who's your favorite turtle today? And who are some of your favorite non-turtle characters today as well? Um, when I was a kid, I would always 
kind of go back and forth on Raph and Leo. But back then, it was kind of like uncool to say that Leo was your favorite turtle because everybody, you know, thought he was like the boring square one or whatever. He's the Cyclops. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there there were times where I, where I would be like, you know, like I would say, you know, like, oh, Raph's my favorite, but like my heart, like in my heart, like I was secretly, secretly saying like, oh, like Leonardo, definitely. Um, and <laughs> I love that you're like the secret must be right. kept. <laughs> so stupid, but like, <laughs> and you know, but not nowadays. I am totally fine with saying that Leo is my favorite. You know, and he he still is. He's probably my favorite. He he he's my favorite one to write. And yeah, I don't know. I just you know, I love Leo. Um, I mean, Raph. You know, Raph is still my second favorite. I love Raph too, obviously. But, like, my favorite non-turtle character is probably Koya. I love drawing her. I love writing her. I love that, you know, the powers that be have let me kind of, like, take her on a journey from, like, her, you know, original kind of just, like, henchman status. Yeah, I love Koya. I love Bludgeon. I love Pepperoni, obviously. (laughs) Who else do I like? I love uh, Lindsay, who... You know, I haven't forgotten. She hasn't been in the comic for a while, but I haven't forgotten about her. I love Lindsay. She's really cool. Like, I like that she's, she's not evil, but she's kind of like the anti-April, where she's just like this human who like hangs around with all these mutants for some reason. I like all of the characters you have named. I, as a kid, was very much like Donatello was my hero. (laughs) But but I didn't want to face the truth that I am Raph. Oh and like now as an adult, I can respect that. Like I, I am Raph and it is who I am. So you're just like a complete asshole? Sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I told you stories before, oh Sophie. <laughs> I told you before we started recording that sometimes I can be a real asshole. It's I have a temper. I like, but I secretly, I just want to hug, um, but I'm going to be a butt face about right, it. Not, right. I mean, I'm an adult, so I like cultivate that Raph self into like a nicer human people can enjoy. Right. Yeah, right. So you can like exist in, in society. Mm-hmm. But like when I'm in pain, when I'm hungry, when I'm tired, yes, sometimes I am an asshole, and I can I can live with that. And you know, I just want to be a cool party guy. <laughs> it's not not what's happened for me. Uh, yeah, and then I love Lita. I think Lita is such a cool character. I just completely forgot about Lita. See, this is, like, I don't know, you know, my my work is all a blur. Yes, I love Lita, too. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I was going to say, it's been, like, what, 14 years that you've been writing Ninja right. Turtles? Like, I think it's okay. <laughs> Sarah, who who do you love? Oh, well, whenever I was a kid, I remember always Raphael says the word damn in the movies. And so such a bad boy. He's like, damn, damn. And I was like, ooh, I like that one. <laughs> he, he angrily yells at the sky, which is pretty much the place that I exist in all the time, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I liked them all. I think at that time they had introduced through like Archie Comics was doing a bunch of Ninja Turtle comics because like everybody has licensed that book at some point, right? <laughs> like yeah, really. almost every almost every publisher almost, it seems. Um, except for the big two, right? Um, oh, but then crossovers. Ah, I don't know. Anyway, I was reading tons and tons and tons of the comics too. So I feel like I just kind of always really liked the Ninja Turtles and was just about it. Like I watched the cartoon, I watched the movies, read the comics. I was just about it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. The thing that really got me into the turtles was like the old Mirage stuff. Oh yeah, was, for sure. Like, you know, like when I was like 10 or something, mm-hmm. like I saw a friend of mine had the uh Palladium Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tabletop role-playing game book oh, from like 1985. And Kevin and Peter did like all the art for it. And a friend of mine had had that and it's got like this really great cover and they all have like the red masks and stuff. And I was just like, wow, who are, what are these turtles? <laughs> like what? They have all red? Like they look kind of evil? <laughs> you know, like, whoa, who are these guys? And like, like after that, I just kind of like shunned the cartoon. <laughs> and yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that, right? Because as many different publishers as there's been, there's been so many different moods for the turtles right Yeah, lots of different tones and i think what's so interesting about that is is that you know they're kind of these archetypal figures like all of them can be reduced pretty easily to like a couple of personality traits like asshole right (laughs) (laughs) there's so so much more to them you know it's like i think a lot of writers really show their strength whenever they're like not only are they on an adventure but i'm gonna like flesh these characters out which is part of why i've loved your run so much is because it's like yeah, let's get into it. I want to see how, like, Michelangelo adopts a kitten when he's grieving. (laughs) And, like, you know, that's all kind of really interesting to me. And I was going to say, actually, I think my favorite Leonardo story is that one shot that you did. Because, like, and you wrote that as well, right? Oh, the the Leo Macro book? Yeah, yeah. The double size? Yeah, I wrote that. Yeah, it's so good. And that was, I think, maybe one of the first times where I was like, yeah, there is a lot to this character. (laughs) Like, it finally made sense. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. What was it like working on that? Because I know that as much as we're kind of like gravitating primarily towards Ninja Turtles here at the top, it's because honestly, I just love the long history of the Ninja Turtles. And what you've done with them has been so great to me. Like I've enjoyed these stories so much. So Thanks. what was uh what was Leonardo like? Yeah, that was that was really fun. I think that was sorry, did I do did I do TMNT Universe before that or was that after that? I, I don't, don't know. know. But that was my first that was like my first big kind of solo writing thing for Turtles. And it just, it seemed really obvious to me, like, what it should be, because one, I love, I love the Northampton farm stuff. Oh, yeah. When yeah, the yeah. turtles are out in the woods and, like, the rural, the rural environment and stuff. I love that. And then in, I can't remember how long after issue 50, the Leo macro was, but in issue 50, Leo had the thing where he, like, chopped off Koya's feathers, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. and you know, I love Koya, you know, cause like I got to design her and like introduce her and, you know, I was just like, well, it seems obvious, like, you know, it should be this kind of like Leo versus Koya thing. And Leo is kind of like, you know, he's like trying to relax kind of, I guess. And it's like always impossible for him to just kind of like take it easy because there's always so much shit going on. And you know, I thought it would be cool to have Koya come back for revenge and then Leo kind of like have to face that, you know, because like he cut off her wings. That's messed up. And it just seemed to fit like really nice and have those two things kind of like come together and Koya kind of like intrude on this moment where Leo is just like, you know, I love my brothers or whatever, but I just kind of like, I just want things to like slow down for a minute. And then Koya shows up and she's all like, Wah! 
crying and shrieking <laughs> and stuff. And then, you know, Leo, he kind of brings Koya into that kind of like desire to just like relax for a minute. And then I felt like with Leonardo that he gets just as much attention like narratively as the other turtles, I guess. But like he never he never like has any kind of connections like outside of the turtles in Splinter in April. Mm -hmm. And it makes Leo feel like he doesn't really have, I don't know, like a life or something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, so like with Koya and Karai too, it's like, yeah, they're both like villains, but you know, he has like some, something going on with both of them outside of like his family. And so I wanted to do something with that and him kind of like kind of actively choosing what he wants, I guess, rather than just like being bound by like duty or whatever. So yeah, that was kind of like my thought process on that. Yeah, that's kind of what comes across with the comic. And that's, I think, why it stands out so much to me as being such a good story, because I felt like it moved him forward in a lot of ways where, you know, he's been kind of stuck for like a long time. <laughs> this is the one who like frowns at Raphael. <laughs> so he's kind of like literally the Cyclops, right? Like you'll see him like cross his arms and be like, we need to train or like right. something <laughs> like that. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, you know what would help you loosen up just a little bit would be if you maybe talk to somebody who you're not directly related to. Right. Like, yeah, some, you know, somebody with where he has like a little less baggage and, you know, and it's it's weird because like all the other turtles, they all have like their like buddy kind of sidekick characters like outside of the group. You know, like mm -hmm. Michelangelo has, you know, like Slash and Mondo Gecko and the other mutanimals. And, you know, he was kind of friends with that one cop lady. And, you know, Raph has Casey, obviously. And now he's got Pepperoni and he's got Alpex and, you know, like that. And, you know, he has like this really kind of specific relationship with Hob that the other turtles don't have. Donatello has Fugitoid. He's got Harold, you know, the scientist guy and stuff like that. And I'm just like, well, who, like, who's Leo's buddy? He doesn't have anybody. And like, I don't know if that's so much of much a, a choice or that his buddy is like Splinter and Leo, he just doesn't reach out into the outside world so much as the other turtles do. And, you know, so that the Leo macros is like, well, how come Leo doesn't have any, you know, like the only buddies he has are like bad guys. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm just like, you know, I'm always trying to kind of like give him somebody else to like play off of besides Raphael all the time. Totally. It's kind of like that dynamic between the leader and the rebel that like we've all seen so often. So it's kind of nice to see distance between those two. Whenever you first picked up the ongoing, right, it was right after that City at War storyline, yeah. which was pretty great. And yeah. I, I had a lot of fun reading it. But Splinter dies, right? Yeah. So you start out your arc with Splinter gone, like off the table. And I thought that one of the most interesting things about that was is that instead of, you know, I think so many people will come onto a book and just be like, okay, so I got to start this with explosions, explosions. And like it's like always trying, there's always like kind of this like bombastic nature, I think, to jumping in on a book that you've loved for a long time to great effect often. But I thought what was so interesting about your approach was is that you're really kind of, 
well, some time has passed and here's how these things have affected everybody and everybody's going in their own separate directions and doing their own thing kind of right now because that's what grief does to us. So I was just wondering, yeah, like what was kind of your motivation for telling the story the way that you did, like as far as beginning it even? Well, I feel like Splinter dying is, for me anyway, it was almost like too easy like a beginning because I'm just like, Oh, well, it's obvious what should happen now. Like everybody Mm. should just kind of fall apart. And it just, you know, I, I thought for like my first story arc, you know, it just seemed, you know, like the trope where, you know, something causes the, the gang to fall apart and then they kind of slowly come back together and try to move forward together. And I was like, Oh, that's what it should be. That's what I should do. It felt to me like, it's not only like Splinter has died in, other versions of the turtles, you know, but I felt like with this splinter, it wasn't just like IDW splinter dying. It was kind of just like, like the idea of splinter has died and I wanted it to, you know, I wanted it to like feel heavy, I guess. And like, you know, when, when, when a loved one dies, like sometimes some people don't want to be around anybody else. And you know, like, of course, Raph is going to, like, run off and be, like, a vigilante or whatever. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, it just, like, like I don't know. It, it just seemed like a no-brainer to me to have kind of, like, a really somber, like, aftermath of Splinter dying. And, you know, because it's, it's huge both in this particular story and it's huge for, like, the idea of Ninja Turtles. Um, you know, because they don't have Master Splinter anymore. Like, what then? And yeah, and you know, my favorite turtles stuff has always been where like everything is just like really somber and kind of like kind of downbeat, you know. And it just it just seemed like like I was almost just you know like I just knew exactly what I had to do in that like first arc, and it just kind of like you know flowed out for me or whatever. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, and when when you said your intro of uh, you like to write comics about people talking about their <laughs> feelings and crying, I was right. like, yeah, and that's it. It's exactly what I need in my Ninja Turtles. Didn't know that I needed it. But exactly <laughs> what I needed. There's, you know, Sarah and I, you know, we have a whole episode dedicated to talking about it. And in it, we talk about how there's just so much emotional depth. I think sometimes, and Sarah and I have talked about this a lot, not just in that episode about, you know, people kill off characters and then are like, tra-la-la, like moving on. And it's yeah. like, uh, that's, that's just not how death feels. Like when someone dies, like I think about my dad all the time. He died yeah. almost a decade ago, you know? And it's like, because he was important to me. Of course it's going to screw up the dynamic between the brothers. They yeah. they lost their leader, their re, you know, like their emotional, their spiritual leader and their father, you know? And it just, I was really grateful that, <laughs> that you made me cry a lot with Aww. those issues. <laughs> I needed it. It felt like very good. And I also love, there's this other huge shift that's happening in the world of, of the Ninja Turtles, which is the, the bomb has gone off. And so all these people have been mutated. And I, I think that those two events together threw a lot of chaos and, and new energy into the comic. Do you agree? And what have you enjoyed most about working with the post-bomb story? Yes, yes, I do agree that, you know, it just kind of shifted the whole status quo and... I'm trying to remember how it went. Cause like my, my original pitch, you know, there was like stuff in it that like didn't happen or that, you know, got discarded or whatever. But one of the things I really wanted to do was because like originally in, I don't know, God, which issue, which issue does the bomb happen? Like 95, 96. Yeah, I think it is. Um, yeah. I think it's 96, but I could be misremembering. Yeah, it's somewhere. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. It's, it's like after Jenica gets mutated, which is like ninety four, I think. And the original bomb, like the way it's depicted, you know, it looks like relatively small. You know, it's like maybe like you know twenty people or something like that. And one of the first things that I really wanted to do was just like expand it. And my my original pitch was the entire island of Manhattan, like. What if the bomb just like expands and it's this like escape from New York thing where they wall off Manhattan because everybody's a mutant in Manhattan now. And, you know, like my editor was like, well, you know, the, the, you know, it's a little big. And so, you know, we like shrunk it down to like that more contained area or whatever, because I, I felt like, you know, just having, you know, like a handful of new mutants, like that's cool. And they're people who have like been like mutated against their will or whatever. Like, that's awesome. But I felt like, you know, the turtles having like, you know, like especially Raph, because he was like, he was there when the mutanimals like, you know, raided the technology for the bomb and like built the bomb and stuff. And they have this kind of like entire neighborhood of people who like don't really know what's going on. And, you know, like would the turtles like feel responsible for that? You know, like would they ignore it? Like, you know, 
it, 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 it just seemed to like make a ton of sense. And one of my favorite Ninja Turtles things is uh, Mirage Volume 4, which started in, God, I want to say like 2001, I think. It never got finished, but it went like 30-something issues. And in that series, Peter Laird had aliens land on Earth and kind of assimilate into like Earth culture. So there's just all these aliens running around now. And the turtles were able to walk around in broad daylight because people just thought they were aliens. And that was always one of my favorite things that, you know, that Peter did. And I was just like, yeah, you know, it should be like that. It should be like volume four where, you know, there's still like, you know, the turtles aren't like on the news or anything, but they can have like a section of the world where they can just walk around. And I I felt like it, it came at like a really good narrative time for when, for like after Splinter died. So then the turtles, like, what if the turtles have students of their own? And what if the turtles, like, you know, like, how do they honor Splinter? They take what he taught them and teach it to somebody else. And so I just expanded the mutagen bomb into Mutant Town and gave the turtles their own dojo to, like, teach people all all the stuff that Splinter taught them. And it just, that also seemed like a great way for them to come back together and, you know, give them, like, something to do, I guess, for lack of, like, a, a better term and kind of, like, move forward in processing Splinter's death. And it just, it just seemed to like really come together like really well. It's such a beautiful storyline and so well told, if I may, and drawn, if I may, and lettered, and everything, and colored, beautiful, perfect, amazing. And I do not want to project, but I'm going to, because that's what we all do when we read fiction. But to me, they're, you know, as a trans person, I, I read about them being able to walk and not be you know, monstrous. Like there's something about that that feels really loving and deeply trans. There's danger of being visibly trans in the world, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not a safe world. And so I'm not saying that's what you were doing because I don't, again, I'm not projecting onto you. I'm just projecting <laughs> onto the comic. That felt really good to me to read and and to see, you know, the the turtles surrounded by people who are, struggling with transformations and limitations that come with that, that they have experienced their whole lives. And to see them in that sort of teacher and and guiding role felt very much like queer community and like trans community. And like, we're going to all, you know, we're going to figure it out together. And just because I'm further along doesn't mean I have it all solved. You know, like I'm still figuring out what this all means for me. So I just, I don't know, it made me feel really, really loved as a trans person is what I would say. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. The last time that I did anything like overtly trans in a comic was in Gem, and I got like really burned for that. Mm. Um, you know, there was a lot of people that didn't like it, and you know, I can you know, like looking back on it now, you know, I see why and so forth. So especially in like a licensed book, I'm always like, I don't know, like I'm really skittish about it because I'm like, I'm like, oh god, is this going to be like problematic again? Like, am I just going to, like, fuck this up by, like, you know, is somebody going to think I'm, like, you know, equating, you know, trans people with, like, mutant animals or something? And so, yeah, like, I've definitely been aware of that kind of subtext, but I try to keep it, like, I mean, like, obviously it's not a 
one-one comparison because the the trans experience is not about going outside somewhere and then suddenly like some kind of external force like suddenly transmogrifies you into something else. It's like not how it mm-hmm. works. Yeah. But like, I think some of us would like that. Yeah. Uh, that would be very convenient. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I'm definitely aware of like the possible like queer subtext to that, you know, cause it's, you know, there's definitely like something queer in, you know, being like, Oh, I'm like horrible. Uh, and then finding your community or whatever, you know, it might not be like a perfect community or whatever, but it's, you know, it's yours. And, you know, just being in a place where you can just kind of let it all hang out, so to speak, you know, is, is like huge. And, you know, the turtles don't really have that kind of like pathos or whatever, like they're mutants, but you know, they weren't people. It's like, they don't have that trauma of like suddenly waking up and you're like a frog person right you know so it's it's different but they have other different trauma of their own and i feel like that's kind of like very queer subtext too because like you know we're all different and there's different kinds of trans people different kinds of queer people but there's still something to it where they you know they can come together and just like uh just like relax and like uh, i can like take off all my shit and like i don't have to like put eyeliner on thank god you know, stuff like that. And it's nice to just let it hang out. And yeah, I think that was the moment for me is when they were like, we don't have to put a disguise on. We can just go to this punk show. Right. And I was just like, <laughs> and then like, <laughs> and then they're all like walking towards the punk show. And I would like sent the, the panel to Sarah and I was like, they just look like a bunch of queer friends hanging right. out. Like, it's so you know, cute. A bunch of dorks. Like, you know, they're, they're like, how do like pants work? You know, and like, but yeah, that, that, that was definitely like a huge draw for me where I was just like, you know, like they can, yeah, they can have a community and they don't all have to like get along or whatever and like be friends with everybody, but that community is still there. And then it just got me thinking about all the stuff that the turtles have like maybe always wanted to do, but never been able to. You know, for example, go to this like metal show. Like it doesn't even have to be like a music show. It could have been anything, you know, like go to the store or something. They've never been able to do any of that stuff. They're just like, oh, here we are in the sewers or here we are in like the bunker of this old shitty church or whatever. Like it sucks, you know, (laughs) and like not just the IDW turtles, but like Mirage turtles and like, you know, the movie turtles and stuff. They always have stuff from like the human world that like they're interested in or even just like kind of set dressing you know they'll have like posters of like bands and stuff like that on their walls but it's like they can never really like partake in any of that stuff so you know it just got me really excited just like oh Michelangelo can like finally like you know go like hang out with like other people and he doesn't have to like like when he 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 was friends with that pizza guy Woody kind of earlier in the series like he always kind of had to like sneak it, sneak up to the back of like the pizza joint, like in the alleyway and stuff like that. You know, he, he, he doesn't have to do that anymore. And like I could do a whole series about the turtles doing a thing for the first time and have it be, you know, fun and hilarious and stuff. Like I had a thing that got cut. The scene just changed and, you know, it didn't work anymore. But like I had a thing where Mona Lisa, she starts up a school like a mutant town school or whatever. And I had a thing where 
Mike and and Donatello, they like came in and like did like guest lectures and stuff like that, you know, and that's like completely new for these characters, like to just do this completely other thing. And, you know, so tough, like normal, quote unquote, normal people get to do that the turtles have never gotten to do, Um, you know, like wear, wear clothes or and just Raph gets to have a motorcycle and like zoom around the streets and stuff. And it's not a big deal. There was one issue where I had like him and Alapex like get hot dogs on the corner or something like that. The stuff like that is like really exciting for me because it's like it's mundane kind of boring stuff, but it's the first time like these characters have ever done something like that. So it's exciting. Yeah, I I feel like that all works so well on a, a queer and trans coding level. And, and for me, it's like, not everything has to be explicit to be good representation. Do we need explicit? Absolutely. But I think coding's great too. So, you know, I, I don't know enough about what went down with Jem, but it seems to me that it would be nice to have like explicit trans characters, but also if there's going to be like backlash for you, like why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. I mean, it was more, it was more backlash from other trans people because the character in Jem is trans, his character Blaze and... There's this one particular scene that just wasn't, I guess it was problematic, you know, like I see why they were upset. But yeah, it was like, like I had only been out for like a year at that point. So I was just like, yeah, let's go. I'm going to do this trans character in gym. <laughs> you know, it was like really exciting or whatever. And then everybody was like, this sucks. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, it was like really devastating. And like, you know, we, tr- we, we like did some edits for the trade and to try to like make it a little better, but. You know, since since then, I was just like, oh, my God, like, it's terrifying. Yeah. Like, I don't want to get, you know, Twitter dogpiled again. (laughs) And doesn't, isn't that kind of a recurring thing, too, like, these days where it's, like, a lot of times, um, I just, I feel like I see trans creators come under a lot of fire. So, I don't know from who I would say, like, kind of from a lot of different places. But you see that on Twitter sometimes and like people have to leave Twitter and stuff like that. And I think that there is definitely a little bit more criticism, maybe because there's just consistently, I guess, like for over like decades and stuff like that. The only trans stories that we really saw in like TV and movies and stuff was like definitely stuff that was for the most part by like straight people who maybe didn't have a great idea of things and so now it's just kind of like maybe because there just wasn't enough for so long people are like everything has to be really and I think that that happens across a lot of queer media right because it's like I feel like even with like lesbians or something it's like there's a lot of like respectability politics in that a little bit whenever you're creating art of like okay but I want your lesbian character to do like only good things and be properly motivated (laughs) and it's like okay but there's no story to that um (laughs) yeah and like a lot of it is in this community like we're all kind of in pain in in some way like culturally speaking I guess and Mm -hmm. there like you said there just aren't a lot of great queer stories and and characters and queer characters and since there's so few queer stories you know it's like yeah i should like explain it from like the reverse like cishet stories there's like an endless amount of those and since there's like a billion of them there can be like good ones there can be like shitty ones there can be like ones that are like well made there can be ones that are like just not well made at all and it's fine 
They don't represent all cishet people the way that we're expected to. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like when the Halle Berry Catwoman movie came out and bombed. They're just like, oh, God, we can't do lady hero, superhero mm-hmm. movies anymore. Oh, that's it. But, you know, when a movie with like a male lead bombs, it's just like, oh, okay, Green well, Lantern. You know, <coughs> Green Lantern. <laughs> or like, you know, any no- like any number of, yeah, like Green Lantern, any number of them. Green Lantern bombs and they're just like, how are we going to go ahead and keep Ryan Reynolds' career going, though? <laughs> like, they're just like, well, it bombed. Like, what should we do for the sequel now? <laughs> it's kind of just like on to the next one, you know? So when there's like a thing with like a trans character, for example, or whatever, it's like, okay, okay, this is it, you guys. This is it. Here it comes, you know? And it's like, if it sucks, then it's just like, oh, shit. Because there's not like you know, 400 other things we can go to, you know, for trans characters. I mean, you know, things are improving now, obviously. Like, I can count them on on one hand, but, like, you know, it's something. So I think, you know, we're not at the point where I can do my shitty gem comic and have it just, like, be a blip, you know, like, and have it not be a thing because it's like, oh, God, it's like the first... The first trans character in Gem, oh my God, you know, it's like a thing. And it has to be great. You know, it can't, I don't have the leeway for it to be garbage, you know, but we we should be allowed to do garbage stuff. I crave trans mediocrity. Yes, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Truly. I mean, I, I mean though, Same, my whole yeah. heart, the standards are so high for and, and I think we've heard lots of other people talk about this. I mean, I'm sure we all have. I think it's true of black women. Black people of all kinds, all kinds of people of color. I think it's true of queer people. I think it's true of trans folks, uh, disabled folks. The list goes on. But it, it's also just like, it's annoying. I'm annoyed by it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely annoying. And at times it becomes a little bit detrimental because being like, oh, well, now I kind of don't want to put that in my book or right. something. is yeah. also kind of like, okay, well, now we'll just have less, you know. But then also I think always... We've talked about this before, too, where it's just like the most important thing is just getting creators who like identify differently across the board into the jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Because it kind of it kind of filters it filters through because it's like through a different lens, like by virtue of whoever the person is. Yeah, like the queerest like new mutant story I've ever read (laughs) is like the one that just came out. And it's literally just because, you know, the creative team as opposed to like. I mean, nothing nothing explicitly queer really happens in it, but there's so much of it where I'm just like, I like this subtext. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here yeah, for this. Absolutely. Girlfriends on interdimensional journeys. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Sophie, something that Sarah and I talked about a little bit in our episode where we talked about the Glory comic, that's episode 87, is that you are so good at drawing diverse bodies. And I love it. Thank you. I'm a fat person. And I'm like, wow, there's people who look like me in these comics. That's really refreshing. And I'm curious where that commitment comes from. Is that just organically how you draw? Is it a conscientious choice? And what's like one of your favorite diverse body characters? Because you draw a lot of them. So I'm, I'm just curious. I think it's a combination of all of that where it's like, you know, one, like, that's the real world, so it just seems kind of dumb if I'm not drawing people who look like that because people are the 
you know, stars, stars of these books, like you know, even if they're like mutants or whatever. Two, I feel like it's it's kind of natural. You know, it just kind of comes out that way, I guess. And three is because drawing drawing everybody the same is boring. I look at like a lot of artists and I'm just kind of like, don't they get bored drawing like the same face and the same body all the time? Like it just seems really boring to me. So a lot of it is just, you know, like I'll draw one character and then the next character, I'm like, okay, they're going to have this kind of nose and these kind of legs. You know, it's, it's exciting to draw like different stuff and it's exciting because it kind of, you know, it can say something about the character, like, you know, how they stand or whatever, how, like, what their body language is, like, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's it's just fun, and it just, like, makes sense. Because, yeah, we were just now talking with Trung, and, like, they brought up this thing where comic book advice of draw everybody in jeans and t-shirt because then the story is <laughs> timeless. <Right>. And, like... <laughs> Yeah, they were just like, what? And like, <laughs> was talking about how much care they put into the clothing now because of that. Like, they were just like, yo, <laughs> you've got to actually, like, this is part of the character too, right? Right. He, yeah. he made it the point that it's like, the clothing that they wear tells you about the character. It also tells you about the society. It tells you about the time if it's based in like our reality. It tells you so much. And it's such a, I thought very uh, enlightening conversation, and and it makes me think about Glory because it one of the things that I really loved about the art with Glory is the way that, um, however Glory's hair was, sort of reflected like where what she was doing and what her mood was. And I think so often we see like female heroes going into battle. You know, they have like their hair like I don't know, is it blown out? Like they look so good, and I'm like, <laughs> my hair doesn't do that on a good day. First off, second off. When I'm being physically active, I do not want to die because my hair obscured my view. <laughs> and I feel like Glory didn't have to worry about that because she had like a... It helped with Glory because she's like an alien or whatever. So I had like a bit of leeway with how ridiculous her hair was. <laughs> it's cool. I liked how uh, big it got in some of the panels and it was just like, oh, so fun. Yeah, I wanted it to be like, yeah, like you were saying, it reflects where she's at kind of like toward the end of the series when she's just like like her friend Wiley is dead and like everybody's dead and you know her hair falls out like she has no hair at the end and she gets really small too I guess it's kind of like a Samson thing you know where like her hair is like tied to her her power how powerful she is Um, oh I love that yeah so like whenever she's like really powerful or I guess, like, physically powerful, mostly. But, you know, her hair just gets, like, huge. And it, like, you know, it's like Spawn's cape where it kind of acts independently of itself. And Yeah. Yeah, I liked all of the character design in Glory. How did you come into that? Did you read the character before? Or was that kind of just, like, a collaboration between you and, I believe, Joe Keating? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Was that just kind of something that you had talked about? Like, how, how did you end up on the book Glory? Um, that was a, it was a total surprise to me. Rob Liefeld and Eric Stevenson were putting together like the extreme relaunch. You know, there was like Glory, uh, like Blood Strike, Prophet. Yeah. And there was a friend of mine who just like recommended me to Rob and Eric. And, you know, they, they reached out to me and that was it. That was like right after 2010, which was like my worst 
financial year that I've ever had. And, you know, I made like no money that year. And I was just like, well, I guess I'm going to have to get like a regular job and maybe forget comics. You know, they're just kind of, they're kind of just too hard or whatever. (laughs) And like, I was already like thinking about like, you know, maybe I should, you know, submit a, a job application to that bakery a block away. And then the glory offer just like came in like out of the blue in my, in my inbox. And, you know, I'd never, I'd never read the comics, the, the glory comics at that point. I kind of knew who she was and I was just like, well, you know, it's either glory or quitting comics, I guess. And right. yeah, so, you know, I, I, you know, I took, I took the job and then, you know, I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, we did that whole episode where we were just basically raving about it because it is so good. And then also I was, you know, a kid of the nineties who read a bunch of comics during that time. And I didn't remember Glory too good at all because I feel like that was a character that I just out of hand completely dismissed. And then I looked back and read the Joe Duffy run and that was actually pretty great. And so I liked how there was a lot of connections. Like, first of all, I liked how the numbering just picked up from where it had left off. Um, I thought that that was cool and how it was kind of like, we're going to tell this story, but like there's there's obvious continuity. Then at the same time, we don't really discuss that we like, you know, we'll change a couple of things as we go, you know, not be beholden to uh, like 100% to the continuity, change yeah. what we need. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of go from there. And I just, it's just such a good run I guess that you know it was nice for like the series to talk about war and what war means and you know how this character has been at war for so long and so and and part of that I think is your art on it showing how glory just picks up so many scars over time right yeah it was fun (laughs) you're just like yeah it was like you know because like I'm you know like I'm like a, a 90s kid too I feel like I feel like glory Yes, she first appeared in Youngblood Strike File in like 1993. And so I, I feel like like she kind of came along like a little too late for me. Right. Um, you know, because like I was like super into all like the, you know, the first batch of like image books like Youngblood and Wildcats and like the Max and, and stuff like that. And so it was like it was really cool getting, you know, to, you know, I didn't like work directly with Rob, but you know, like we would send him like every issue or whatever and he'd come back like, this is awesome. You know, there was like a convention I did where I got to like sit with Rob and do a signing and, you know, in glory, I got to draw like, like bad rock and like all these other like young blood characters and stuff, you know? So like, that was just like really cool for me. I still would love to do like a bad rock book. I think, I think that would be really, that would be really fun, but getting to, kind of do this like extreme studio stuff and they were like yeah make it as gory as you want you know (laughs) i'm just like all right yeah glory you know she's breaking people's spines and ripping arms off ripping Mm. arms off and like her sister like punches the guy's brain in and stuff (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah that was just like you know it was they just pretty they almost just pretty much let us do whatever we want so that was really fun yeah, I love that comic. Um, was Wet Moon the first comic that you did? No, the fir- my first like published book was Too Much Hopeless Savages. Oh, okay. Number one. Awesome. I, th- I, think, I think that was a four issue thing. And that was in like 2002, 2003, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
so yeah, I did like backup strips in that. And then after that, I did this book with Anthony Johnston, who was kind of like a big shot now, you know, shout out to Anthony. And we did this book called Spooked. And then after that, I did Wet Moon, which was like 2004, 2005. Yeah, we, we definitely have to, we must talk about Wet Moon. I wouldn't, I want to know, you know, where did the story idea come from? And why was it so important for you to tell this story about these, you know, young women? Um, I think like at the time I was like really hardcore into like goth stuff. And, you know, I was just like, you know, I just want to draw like goth kids in college, which was like, you know, like my experience or whatever. And, you know, I wanted to be like my time at Savannah College of Art and Design in this kind of like weird, you know, muggy Southern city. And I was like, you know, I'm really into like uh, Twin Peaks. You know, I like drawing ladies and I don't remember ever like really reading a lot of like slice of life, but I was just like, yeah, like that's like, what if there is no plot? What if it's just, you know, characters kind of hanging out and, you know, there's like some kind of character study stuff and, you know, kind of like weirdness in the background, kind of like Twin Peaks. Um, And yeah, like, you know, that's, that's what I was really into. And when I started it, you know, I thought like, okay, I'm just going to like keep doing this until like, you know, get bored or, you know, cause there's no, there's, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have like any big plot. It's just going to be, you know, stuff happening in these characters lives and that's it. And that's the kind of stuff that like I gravitate towards anyway. And I don't know, there's, there's just something exciting to me about not having like a big plot and just like, here are some characters that I like to draw and sometimes they do funny stuff. Sometimes, you know, they're like mean to each other. Sometimes, you know, they're nice. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like when we were talking earlier about the pressure put on queer characters and trans characters to be exemplary, you know, like they must be very, very good people. And I liked how messy everyone in Wet Moon is. They're messy. Yeah. And I think I think it helped that back when I started Wet Moon, I wasn't thinking about that kind of thing at all. Mm. It wasn't on my radar. And I feel like at that age, even if it had been on my radar, I don't think I would have cared at that point. You know, I was like in my 20s. I just didn't give a shit. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to do this, you know, meandering slice of life goth comic. And I don't give a fuck. Here it is. You know, like I just, <laughs> yeah. You know, like I look, I look back on some of the early books now and I'm just like, like, well, God, why did I do that? You know, like, well, that's problematic, you know, and so forth. But at, at the time, yeah, that just, I just wasn't on my radar at all. I like the messiness. It's kind of like going back to the kind of thing where if there's a lot of media, you can afford to have like fuck ups. Mm. And I wanted Wet Moon to be like, you know, like almost every character is queer. So it's not like most things where you have like one queer character. Right, 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 right. right. And if that one queer character is is like bad or something, then that's it. Like, oh, all the other characters are straight shit. Like, that's it. But like, you know, every character in Wet Moon is is queer almost. So it's like if one queer character is bad or mean or you know or whatever or or even just badly written i guess like you know there's like 
10 other ones who are also queer. And hey, you know, if you don't like this one, we got 10 other ones, you know? And, <laughs> Come on down. Right, yeah. You know, I've gotten complaints from people that are like, there's so many queer characters in this comic, like, that's so unrealistic. <laughs> and I'm just like, what do you talk, like, what? I'm sorry, I laugh because I'm like, I struggle to name straight people sometimes. I'm like, okay, who do I know that's straight? <laughs> It's like, yeah, it's like people, like, yeah, the reason it seems unrealistic to you is because, you know, you're probably, likely not queer. So it's like, you're just hanging out with people that are like you, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and in college, in my experience in college, like, yeah, you know, I had a lot of straight friends in college or whatever, but like, college was like, all these people from different backgrounds and places and stuff like thrust together in this one place. And, you know, like I got to meet and be friends with people that I probably never would have like even like run into otherwise, you know, in some ways it's kind of like you had to, it's almost like the college like kind of chose your friends for you, at least in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, where like, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I got my roommate and like, you know, that, that one person down the hall, maybe. But it's like, as it goes along, you know, you get to like kind of choose your friends as your like circle expands. So I wanted Wet Moon to kind of be like that. Like some of the characters are friends like from childhood or whatever, but like a lot of the other ones are just, you know, like, hey, we met in college and people who, you know, from different backgrounds who are just kind of put together, you know, suddenly they're friends because of the circumstance. And yeah, like, you know, I I really like that about the kind of college setup in the story. Mm, Everything you've said deeply resonates for me and my experience in college. And I really was so drawn to when Cleo's like, we're not dating. And then like four pages later, she's like, okay, so I'm dating a girl. (laughs) I was like, that is, I can see it. Yeah, it does sneak up on you sometimes. And you're like, oh, hmm, I just learned something about myself. (laughs) It's a lot of sweetness in Wet Moon. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of love for how messy people are and how messy we can be. And it's it's similar, it seems to me, in the way that you do the body diversity. It's like it's the diversity of like, you know, we're not even the same person day to day, right? Like we're going to make mistakes. And some days you're going to be a jerk to someone yeah. or a raff, if you will. And and some days, you know, like that might not be the same way you show up. And I just I love that fluidity, that multiplicity that um, I see throughout your work. So that's it's very, very exciting. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think like as Wet Moon like went on, there was definitely like more sweetness like in it, I think. Because mm. like volume seven, I don't know if you've read volume seven, but like, you know, the the final volume for now. Um, <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. You. Yeah, for, you know, it was like, it's like all sweetness, like almost. And I think like when I started it, I was kind of like, I don't want to say like a nihilist, but like, uh, you know, like very much just like not into the kind of human spirit stuff. I was just like, nothing means anything. You're just a bunch of shit in this comic. <laughs> like, you know, something happens in this book. No, it doesn't mean anything. It's just something I thought of when I was writing it, you know? And so there was like a lot of that. And I think like, as it goes along, you know, I started the book when I was like 24 this kind of like nihilistic piece of shit kid. <laughs> and, you know, I did, I finished volume seven, you know, just like a couple of years ago or whatever. And it's like, you know, I'm like much older and 
I guess I'm I'm still kind of a piece of shit, I guess, but <laughs> as yeah. the resident asshole, <laughs> I relate. It's like, like, you know, by the time volume six and six and seven were rolling around, I was just like, I'm just tired of everything just like being so dark in this comic and meaningless in this comic. You know, so I kind of like there's definitely more like, oh, they're friends kind of stuff mm. as it goes on. <laughs> well, and that that, you know, in some ways that replicates it seems to me like the arc of life, like things change as you age and why yeah. wouldn't the comic too? So um, like, I don't, have you, like, have you read all the books? I have not. Okay. Okay. I won't say anything then. Cause I don't want to spoil <laughs> it for you, but there is, there's one major thing that happens in volumes five and six. And it was, you know, it's, it's really dark back then. I was just like, yes, yeah, it's, it's just shit happens in life, man. <laughs> kind of thing, you know? <laughs> Yes. And yes. it had been something that I had been planning for years before then. And I got uh, I got to the volume where it was supposed to happen. And like I was it's like I just hit a wall. And I remember like thumbnailing the entire book with the original thing that happens, the bad thing. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I hate it. And one of my my cousins died around the same time. Mm. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I I rewrote it and I re-thumbnailed like the second half of the book or whatever. And like that's partly why it took so long for the gap between like volumes mm. five and six or something. And yeah, I was just, you know, I was just like, you know, stuff doesn't always have to be completely shitty. And that was just this kind of like turning point for me and for, I think, my work as a whole. I really relate to that. I, I remember I plotted out one of my books and everybody died terribly. <laughs> and then I went to write it and I was like, I don't want to make queer characters' lives terrible. Right, right. Oh, oh, I can make a different choice. I think I shall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I don't know how it worked for you, but like when, you know, you make that choice where like, hey, it doesn't have to be shitty. It can be great. And it's kind of just like everything just like falls into place like really mm-hmm. easy after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes I make the mistake and I think many creators do of like, oh, I got to I gotta go grim dark to like really get people going with this. And it's like, actually, sometimes people just love a little a little soft something too. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> and sometimes bad stuff doesn't happen. Exactly, you know? right? But that's the inverse. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. You know? <laughs> sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, okay? Yeah, we gotta right. got to create space for both. Well, Sophie, it has been such a damn delight to talk to you. We talked at length about the Ninja Turtles, which I don't yeah. think either of us anticipated, but we should have known we're both... Shellheads? Ooh, shellheads. I'm not, I'm not sure like if the Turtles fandom has, like, a term like a lot of other fandoms do. Maybe they do. I don't know. Anywho, uh, as the... Resident Raph, I appreciate uh, getting to learn more about what what went into it for you. Oh, I had to mention, it was very cool going from reading TMNT to Wet Moon because at one point, one of the characters has a TMNT shirt on and I was like, oh my Um, God. Yeah, there's there's a character who in like volume two has a gem shirt. It was kind of like... You okay, know, I'm remembering that now too. Yes. Right, like prophet prophesizing everything I oh my would eventually God. work on like 10 years later. You were just like manifesting it. 
Um, yes. I love that. That's beautiful. So Sophie, if people want to find you online, what's the best way to do that? Um, I'm most active on Twitter. I'm at uh, mooncalf1, which is M-O-O-N-C-A-L-F-E-1, like the number one. That's my biggest one. I have an Instagram, but it's only for monster toy pictures. So I don't know if that's, uh, <laughs> I'll just say it. That's at mooncalf23. But yeah, mostly pretty much just Twitter. That's my main thing. Amazing. And how much longer, do you know how much longer you're going to be doing the turtles? Or can you talk about that? Yeah, I I am writing for the foreseeable future. So I'm not, yes! I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Yes! Because um, <laughs> originally the plan was for me to just do 12 issues and then somebody else would come in and do 12 issues. Then somebody else would come in and do their 12 issues and so forth. And I think you know, part of it got kind of messed up because of COVID. Sure. You know, because like I had like just started working on it when all that hit or whatever. Or I had just finished like my first arc or whatever. So that was part of it. And then I don't know. It just... I just kind of kept going. And then I was just like, okay, okay, I'll leave at 123. That's my last one. Okay. And then, you know, like <laughs> I even wrote like my final issue, you know, like I would come back to draw it or whatever. And then we got kind of talking. I was just like, do I have to leave? Like, <laughs> you know, like I know you want to get like other people and like, you know, it's cool to like give somebody else a shot, but like. But also. <laughs> you know, like what if I didn't, what if I didn't go? And so, yeah, so, and, like, because um, uh, Bobby had, like, approached uh, Tom to come back, and, like, at, that was when I was just like, but I don't want to go. And then Tom was just like, well, what if we both stayed? You know, so now now we're doing, like, I don't know if you've heard about the Armageddon game stuff that's coming out. It's, like, um, I think it starts in December. But anyway, so, like, Tom and I have been working on this kind of, like, big event thing. Yay. Oh, how Fun. Yeah, I won't, you know, I won't be drawing as much because I have like other stuff to do, but, you know, I'll still be writing and I'll be drawing uh, issue 123, uh, which Yay. is going to be a Leo issue. <gasps> Yay, Yay, more Leo. Uh, he's going to get, he's going to get some friends. Leo gets to have friends? Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, it's a brave new world. Yeah, so I'm not going anywhere for now. Amazing. Is there anything else you have coming up that you want to plug? Um, I'm about to go back to work on my Shadow Eyes book with Iron Circus, which I've been chipping away at the next Shadow Eyes book for years. But it's like, you know, it's not like a, a pay the bills kind of book, mm-hmm. you know, so I just like I just like never have time to just like really sit down and do it. But, you know, I'm doing really well financially right now. So I'm just like, OK, now's the time. Yeah, I got to seize it when you got it. Right. I'm going to finally finish this goddamn book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm doing that next. And Yay. I don't, I don't really know what's coming out or what's going to happen after that. I have a, have a few options. Okay. We'll see. Well, keep in touch. Let us know how we can support you. We'll be yeah. retweeting your things as we do. Awesome. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sarah, thank you for being here. I know you're not here at the end, but I'm still <laughs> going to thank you. <laughs> Listeners, we think you're the best. We appreciate you being here with us. Kate, thanks for making us all sound great. All right, y'all. Have a good one. See ya. We 
are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.